Uh, welcome to today's uh, show. My name is uh, Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. With me is Alexander Mercuris from the very popular Duran podcast. And uh, with us today is Claire Daly, uh, Irish member of the European Parliament, uh, very outspoken pro-diplomacy, anti-war, and uh, many probably know her from her excellent speeches in the EU Parliament, uh, which I'm personally a fan of. So, uh, so uh, welcome. Flattery will get you everywhere. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice talking to you both. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, sorry, Alexander. No, go on, go on, go on, Alan. Yes, yeah. No, I was just going to suggest we might uh, start uh, with the. Uh, direction of yeah, the European Union as we have an MEP here uh, because um, well I think everyone agrees that the European Union has a well has got a great narrative behind it so after you know two world wars uh, in which we killed each other in gruesome numbers you know the Germans French other European states come together in seeking unity resolving differences with peaceful means uh, but I would say over the past decade especially since the Russia Gate years uh, there seems to have been a more uh, militaristic mood perhaps in the European Parliament so and then especially after the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, things have really changed uh, I'm thinking then of the EU foreign policy chief uh, Josep Borrell arguing that the war in Ukraine will be solved in the, on the battlefield while the EU Parliament now appears to yeah, denounce negotiations and diplomacy almost as treason by Putinists uh, so while we see countries from you know Turkey, Israel, China, Indonesia, all these countries attempting to get uh, the, the talks started, uh, it tends to be met with a somewhat cold shoulder in Europe. So I was hoping perhaps we can start with, uh, uh, if you can explain what's happening. Obviously, the international situation has changed, but how can you explain what's been going on in the European Union? Yeah, we'd need a lot more time than we have probably mm -hmm. to comprehensively answer that one. But I mean, I think your starting remarks were the accurate ones, that the narrative of the European Union is a, a good one of peace and all the rest. But I suppose my immediate response to that is that it was a narrative. It's true that it played a certain role in terms of sort of peace in Europe, but at its essence, really, the European Union was... Uh, I suppose, an institution or institutions which enshrined neoliberalism at the core of European politics and the military creep and the move towards more foreign policy started really with the other treaties, you know, many years ago, the Nice, Lisbon and all of these treaties laid the basis for greater intervention in foreign affairs and these areas, which like when Ireland joined the European Union, it was never more than an economic union. But the creep then became, I think people thought that they would be a sort of like a United States of Europe and develop that collective power. And part of that move was a move towards involvement in foreign affairs. And we saw that through the various treaties. And sadly, Ireland is actually the only country where our constitution requires us to go to the people and have a referendum if we are to adapt any treaty changes. All of the other member states, it's just their governments that adapt them. So this idea that the European institutions have a democratic mandate is actually a stretch as far as I'm concerned. So what we saw was a journey um, which has been absolutely accelerated now with the war in Ukraine. But the militarism and that path, they were already well on the way to that. So the financial framework for the first time 
had direct expenditure on militarism. We had projects about militarism going back over the past decade. And unfortunately, Putin's invasion has given them their Christmas wish list because now the checkbooks are open. Uh, all of the committee agendas are turned over to a war agenda. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is the process was there. This has allowed it to accelerate. It's lunacy beyond your wildest dreams. It is utter lunacy. Whatever about any idea of the European Union having some sort of strategic autonomy in the Trump years, it's completely gone now. The European Union is a vassal state of US empire, even though its own uh, interests are being decimated by taking this path. It's, it's lunacy on steroids. I can't actually get over it. Can I say, nor can I, as somebody who for most of his life was a supporter, first of the European community and then who was a supporter to a great extent of the European Union because I thought coming from Greece, a country like Ireland, which has experienced war, that you know the European Union was a project for peace. It's just very extraordinary to me how over the last few years it's become a project for increasing aggression. I have to use that word. I don't have any other word. Increasing increasing aggressiveness. Let's change and talk about aggressiveness and war. And I think that the other thing I've seen in this is that, and I think this is something that perhaps European leaders don't quite understand, is that the result is that Europe's global influence is actually declining. You could see this in the way in which various countries around the world are now responding to the language that they hear from Europe and from the European leadership, and specifically over the Ukraine, Ukraine war. They're starting to distance themselves because they don't see solutions coming from the European Union to this crisis. On the, on the contrary, they seem to see things getting more aggressive all the time. Does anybody, this is my own analysis, I mean, two questions briefly. Do you agree with it? And secondly, does anybody within the European leadership understand it? And perhaps ancillary to the last question, if they do understand it, do they even care? Yeah, I mean, well, I certainly agree with you. Thank God I'm not in the European leadership. Um, but I suppose we have one of the weakest leaderships at both EU level in von der Leyen, Burrell, Charles Michel. These are incredibly weak politicians who actually failed in leadership roles in their own countries. And now they're heading up these European institutions. The leadership in the member states is incredibly weak. I mean, it pains me to say that the best of what's coming out with Europe, the one who's only half making sense is Macron. Like the idea that he would be the most reasonable is crazy for me to say, but it's absolutely true. Um, it, it, it's it's lunacy and it comes from weakness. I mean, we often speculate that would the war have happened or would Europe have taken the stance it had taken if Ang Angela Merkel was still in power? I don't think so because she was somebody who was a spokesperson for German capitalism. She put the interests of Germany first always and the interests of Germany were tied up in the interests of the European Union. So de facto that followed. Now this is patently us shooting ourselves in a couple of feet. And I, I don't understand why they're doing it, that nobody is calling halt. 
Um, I, I just, I don't get it. I mean, the European Parliament itself is an association of extremists, really. I mean, the European Parliament is not representative of the citizens of Europe. It's the only directly elected body. But let's be honest about it. In about 10 countries, less than 30% of people vote. The people who come in here are generally either retired politicians who are sent here as a reward or the parties use the funds and all the access to build their own resources at home. And nobody keeps an eye really on the bigger European project, but they're just getting caught up now in this increasing Russophobia and war jingoism, and they just can't let go. And the, one of the reasons why they can't is that they are enabled and empowered by a complicit media. And that's possible because there is such a distance between them and the citizens, so they're not getting to meet the citizens and hear them, and yet the media is telling them they're doing everything right, and politicians love that. So nobody wants to be the Putin puppet or the, the sort of freak, the odd one out, the embarrassment and a disgrace, as we're called in Ireland. So it's designed to put people off, and we know from speaking to our colleagues that they feel that. Um, and their parties kind of tell them to toe the line. They might mm. like what's been heard, but they're they're silenced into complicity. I was, going to, I was going to ask you that question actually, because um, I mean, can I just add to the points that Glenn said at the beginning of the program? I love your speeches. I also think they're courageous speeches, if I may say. And I wish there were poor people who had the courage to speak out like you. But you you must meet some of these. Em some of these MEPs in private. I mean, after you've spoken, I mean, they know your views. I don't want you to name any names, obviously, but I mean, do you get the sense that maybe there are more doubts within the MEP body than get reflected in the votes? I mean, is, is there any real concern amongst people within the European Parliament about the direction of events? Or are you just, or is it just a small group of people, principally yourself and a couple of others, arguing well, it's these a, points? Yeah. It's a small group of people, but it is definitely getting bigger, for sure. Um, the original uh, motion on the war, there were 13 of us who voted against that, like, and we were viciously targeted at that time. But even at that time, mm. I remember a um, an MEP from Bulgaria coming up to me, and that would be from the Social Democrat group, the biggest, second biggest group in the parliament saying, look, uh, I agree with everything that you've done. And I I wished I could have voted like that, but I, I couldn't. We will just be killed in the media and we're not allowed to do that. But over the period of the war. After about six months, I noticed a lot of Bulgarians were kind of very cautiously now kind of pointing out the impact on the cost of living and where was this war going now and a few things like that to now more than a year later, full on sort of going, this is lunacy. Why is why are none of you calling for peace? So I think the countries around there, there'd be a lot of outspokenness from the likes of Slovakia, uh, Bulgaria, some of these countries, ironically enough, but then you have the absolute, I mean, the German Greens are like the biggest warmongers in the place. Um, they'd be absolutely bad. The Polish across the board don't seem to want the war to stop, can't get enough of it. The Baltic states are absolutely, and it seems to me that they're the ones setting the agenda. So we had this narrative before the war started of the likes of Poland and Hungary being these sort of conservative outliers who the European Union had to drag and discipline and mould. So now they are the ones 
setting the shots. And, you know, it's this disgusting narrative that we're in a battle of authoritarianism against democracy. But some of the measures being brought in in the member states are utterly frightening in terms of um, rewriting history and the whole role of World War II, forcing elderly people in Latvia to take language tests because they had Russian citizenship only because they couldn't get Latvian ones, even though they lived all their adult lives in Latvia, old people. Uh, it's frightening, taking down historical monuments, um, this is vicious, like a vicious <coughs> targeting of, of Russians, and we're we're getting that in the parliament as well. Uh, that they brought in rules now. I mean, their their <coughs> recent scandal, Cattergate scandal, of corruption in the parliament, and their response to that was, well, it's all about Russia and China. No, it isn't. It's corruption, you know. Um, so, uh, have they seen? Sense? No, I don't think so. But every single day, we get contacted by staff in here who kind of come up to you saying love what you're doing keep it going we love that you have a lot of people who agree with you uh, and emails across the board across the board from every country the disconnect between the political establishment and the citizens is massive massive can, can i say that i completely agree with the last point which uh, i also find in london and that might give us a surprise you know the britain is also pretty hardline on this but I can say for a fact, it does not reflect the shifting mood of the British population. And I can also say that if there was alternatives offered, if people were told a little bit more about, you know, exactly what's going on, you know, what the diplomacy is, or lack of it, um, it would shift even further. And um, before I come over to Glenn, I mean, my background politically was very, very much on the left. And you mentioned the Greens. The Greens used to be an anti-war party. The left used to be, you know, the force in Europe, in all the various European states, which tended to push anti-war positions. What has happened to the left? I mean, does it even exist anymore? You talk about discrimination against people in places like Latvia and all of this, uh, people be pressed to learn to take language tests. Once upon a time, left-wing people were the people who strongly opposed that. Any Irish person who has gone through Irish history knows that. Any Greek person knows that. Where, where has the left gone? Why has it just packed its bags and walked away and gone to the other side? That's a rhetorical question because I don't think there is an answer. <laughs> I mean, do you have a do you have the same sense as me that this is all just gone basically and that's one of the things that we're missing well we definitely are i mean there, there's no doubt about that i mean there was an opinion poll done in ireland in the last five weeks or so four weeks by the peace and neutrality alliance uh but proper polling where 87 percent of the people of ireland said they favored a ceasefire to facilitate negotiations yet i participated in a, a TV programme that same week and it was all scandalised sort of so Claire Daly wants us to talk to Putin 
what do you think? And in the first row, there were three beautiful Ukrainian women sort of crying into the camera. And every time I spoke, the camera went on them. It was a horror scene. But it was just, as you say, there was no space allowed for what is diplomacy? What is dialogue? What is a ceasefire? And what is peace? And the young Ukrainians were saying, oh, this is terrible. You don't know what it's like. How can you sit here? And said, we do know what it's like. That's precisely the point. Ireland was occupied by a stronger neighbour. Our country still isn't united, but we traded, if you like, that for peace and an agreement, which thankfully the international community at that time rolled in and the US played a really good role in having the back of Ireland to deliver that peace process. And at least people aren't killing each other kind of thing, you know, but I mean... What happened to the left? Well, I mean, we could be here all the time, but it's it's incredibly weak. I, I think its demise started before this. Um, I think in terms of empire, a lot of it was around the time of the Syrian conflict. I think a lot of them kind of lost their way a bit, um, didn't keep up with the changes maybe that were taking place in that war. But a lot of it now is that a lot of the left in Ireland now have walked away from what we call foreign affairs or empire or anti-imperialism to concentrate on identity politics and so on. And that that sort of defines you now as liberal identity politics. And they've moved away even from economic and social issues. And the sad thing about this anti-war situation is that the people who are going to gain from this are the far right because they're the ones talking about the impact on people's living standards. I mean, there is growing racism in Ireland now, which the Irish government bemoan and say, oh, this is terrible. These terrible riffraff people now engaging in racism, it's really not on. But it's the government who are responsible for causing that racism by, in and appropriately so, we're fully in favour of safe harbour being given to all refugees, Ukrainians, refugees from elsewhere. But what the Irish government did was absolutely bring in one of the highest levels of Ukrainians per capita in Europe and then said, we're going to build houses for Ukrainians. Not for the Irish people on the list, not for the other migrants on the list, for Ukrainians. Now, I'm fully in favour of them providing accommodation for Ukrainians and everybody else. But the way of doing that engenders racism and the people getting targeted are the black people and so on. So uh, that's who's gaining from this. The left is nowhere to be seen. The war annihilated what was left of them. They began to eat up. So we're in the left group in the European Parliament. It's the smallest group. There were about 40 of us. And even in the sort of the old campaigns, the likes of Die Linke in Germany have now split down the middle. The ones in the European Parliament in the main are on the, uh, well, I won't call it, they're not as anti-war as some of the ones back in Germany are. So they wouldn't be great. Um, we saw the Spanish under severe pressure and that as well inside their own parties. A lot of parties suffering huge uh, turmoil or others sort of just uh, playing it safe. Don't mention the war, as Basil Fawlty used to say. It's very much don't mention the war and they don't. And they just try and campaign on other issues. But it, it is the big missing factor because if you have that level of, of support in opinion polls in Ireland, and you've had some very big protests in Italy, but not elsewhere, really. That's been the exception. Um, yeah, it does. It's, it is definitely linked to the weakness of the left. Mm. This is, and um, I, I keep harping on about it, but the role of the media is huge in this. Mm.
We have the same challenge in uh, this country, in Norway, though. We always had a rule. You, we, shouldn't, we do not send weapons into armed conflicts because it makes the matters worse. Everyone was on board. This was uh, accepted. But now, uh, for this one war, uh, everything is turned on its head. It's, uh, it's deeply moral not to send weapons. And, and that's fine if you want to make that argument. But I guess what I'm kind of struck with, which is also what I see in the EU Parliament, is uh, what is largely a complete absent of debate. Uh, so, you know, you can either be for sending more weapons or you're shamed as an idiot, uh, useful idiot of Russia. Uh, but, but again, I've heard you as well in the EU Parliament, you uh, consistently condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine on several occasions. Yet, when you object to sending more weapons or advocate for negotiations, it's always the same knee-jerk reaction. It's not uh, countering your argument. It's always, you know, well, now you're running, you're carrying water for Putin. You're, it's just, uh, um, this, this, uh, did this occur earlier before the invasion? Or because I'm... Um, Trying to get at the root of this. When when did the, well, you stamp out mm, the debates? I think it's a really important aspect on this. I mean, obviously, the slogan goes, truth is the first casualty of war. And that is true. And I suppose the disorientation of the left is not that dissimilar to the way in which the big social democracies caved against the backdrop of World War One and so on. These things aren't new. But what is new this time is if you even take the Iraq war and there was loads of disinformation and there was loads of jingoism at that time, weapons of mass destruction and all that. But the difference was you could articulate an anti-war position. It might have been the dominant in the mainstream media, but the, every article and every program featured an anti-war argument that was engaged with. So we got into the nitty gritty. Well, is it war for oil? What's the story here? Now you don't engage with the political argument. You just say Putin puppet. And that's enough. Anybody who calls for peace and there's no analysis or digging or space for critical thinking. Now, that's given rise to a huge crisis in the minds of ordinary people. And that's why we get so many emails from people going, I think I'm going crazy. I'm the only one saying this, or my friends are repeating these slogans that they hear on the TV morning, noon and night, but they're not. The space for critical and rational debate is shrinking and it's getting worse now, big time. I see it linked to the amount of American money, National Endowment for Democracy money, which has been bragged about as supporting independent media all across Europe. I think that money now is being called in. We have all the think tanks that operate. We have them in the European Parliament week in, week out, advising us on policy. And they never say this is a US funded think tank, like, you know, whereas it's just taken as, well, should the US are our friend? Well, we say, well, look, the US are interfering here and that. They say, they're our friend. What are you talking about? Like kind of thing, even though they've done things which are not very friendly. <laughs> Nord Stream 2, for example, uh, potentially, and others. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I look, I, it, it's dry, the whole thing I think is driving me crazy. I, I don't know. It's, it's mental. But this idea of shutting down the space for rational debate is everywhere now. And now they're having they have special committees on foreign interference. <clears throat> they are um, doing fact checking, but it's not actually fact checking at all. Just if you have a different view, that's it. You're gone. They are now introducing in the parliament. They're trying to criminalize and sanction people in Europe for disinformation and foreign interference without any legal definition of what that is. This is really 
frightening the direction in which this is going. Yeah, the EU has a fact-checking uh, mechanism where uh, where it, where the the ones who argue that uh, uh, we in the West backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014 as the start of this conflict, that this is uh, the fact-checkers pointed out that this is. Uh, uh, f- fake news. It was a democratic revolution. But this is not checking facts. This is checking narratives. You know, you can check the facts. Uh, well, did it follow the constitution? No. Did it have the democratic support among the majority of the population? No. Uh, did they remove a uh, democratic elected government? You know, did they was the new one uh, aided by put in place partly by the United States? All of these are facts, but it's not. But they don't affect checking facts. It seems like they're checking narratives. But uh, I, I want to ask you about the, the think tanks because I've seen you uh, speak about this and also seen your names or, or referring to the reports as well. Uh, um, I forgot the name of the report uh, on, on the role of think tanks in Europe. And uh, you mentioned uh, in the parliament that they were, uh, I think, if, to quote you, uh, they were parading right, <laughs> around the EU parliament. And uh, this is quite interesting because... Um, in the US, this has become a real problem because the think tanks, they dominate in terms of writing the research reports and analysis, which uh, the politicians make their decision. Also, they hire the politicians, which are out of government, which can then you know cultivate it as fellows until they return them into office, still working for the think tanks. And then they can also dominate the media for expert opinions. The, the problem in the United States, though, is that uh, the weapons manufacturers are the main funder of nearly every single one of these think tanks, which, uh, you know, leans then towards having military solutions to every problem. But I'm I'm assuming I'm less familiar with the think tanks in Europe. Uh, where would the money come from? Are they aligned with the, only the Atlanticist view or how, how, how do you see their role in terms of influencing European politics? Well, you see, this is the problem because they are, I suppose the biggest problem with them is that they're paraded as neutral and independent. That's the biggest thing. I've no problem with them having a view. And if they want to have an Atlanticist view, absolutely. But declare it as such and declare your funding. But this is the only view we get in. And it's it's classified as independent, which it isn't. And we try to fight to say in our, these reports that anybody who presents before the parliament shouldn't have a conflict of interest, their funding and all of that should be openly declared. Uh, they don't really do that properly. Uh, and it's not even really, it's it's who get, gets in before the committee. So when you have the big groups dominating the debates, they're the ones who decide who would present to a committee. So then they're the voices that you're hearing all the time because they come from the bigger groups. So the odd, odd time we might get somebody onto the agenda, but very, very rarely. Um, the money is coming from big industry, from big pharma, from big agri. There are 60,000 official lobbyists in Brussels, 60,000 people officially now on the register lobbying the EU institutions. That is absolutely massive. They have the right to come in here. Every piece of legislation, every piece of this is, they're not that you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of funding. That money is not for nothing. Those organizations that fund that are getting their money back big time. There's a lot of disinformation at the moment, for example, about the nature restoration law. You can be absolutely guaranteed that big agri is behind a huge amount of that. As you say, the military industrial complex is funding huge amounts of it. I mean, the very basis upon which the European Union has started to directly fund military research 
came out of a process which was started in the European Union maybe 10 years ago or so, where they had this group of personalities, as it was bizarrely called, which was sort of reaching out to people to decide what Europe needed to do to defend itself going forward. And on this committee, which was going to advise on this, the majority of them were from the, the big military industrial complex companies. And surprise, surprise, then they came out and said, do you know what would be a great idea now? Would be direct military expenditure on militarism. And they said, wow, OK, we'll do a few projects on that now. Uh, and then the, the close world and the same companies that advised on that were the ones who benefited from the contracts that were then set up. And this is kind of hidden in full public view because we don't have a media which analyzes this and mm. joins the dots because they've been bought and paid for as well. And as you say, anybody who questions that, it's not fact-checked, it's the narrative is spun and that's enough. Um, so yeah, they're out there and they are everywhere. Mm. Can I ask a question about Ireland specifically? Because I mean, I, I know, I don't pretend I know Ireland very well, but I've been there. And I would have thought that if there's one country where, because of its history, people would understand these 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 events perhaps better, you know, the, the, the way in which manipulation happens, the way media control also happens, it would be Ireland itself. And if there was one place also where you would get institutions, uh, rather organisations that would push back on this, it would be Ireland. I mean, you were talking about the kind of things that are happening in Ireland and the rise of far-right people because um, concerns of most people are not being addressed. Anybody who has any familiarity with Irish Republican would, uh, Republicanism would know what a complete reversal that is, that this sort of thing has happened to the extent that it has. I mean, is, is there more resistance to this in Ireland itself? Are there more independent voices? I mean, we, we, obviously we know yourself, but um, is the media perhaps a little more open there than it is in other places? Are there alternative media foundations? And what is the position of Sinn Féin? Which, I mean, I'd just be curious to know uh, for myself, I mean, as a, as a party, does it have a view on the war? Yeah, there, there are so many issues there and I think they touch on really important aspects. I suppose the first, we'd start with the most negative one first. Uh, no, there is no independent media. There are very few firm voices calling out on this. Anybody who did and tried was immediately shut down. So I've been in the European Parliament now for four years. Before that, I was in the Irish Parliament for eight years. Myself and my colleague Mick Wallace got elected as independents, which is a hard thing to do. You're basically getting elected to a very small number of European seats based on your reputation. And we were really popular in Ireland as politicians who held those in power to account, in the which allowed us to pick up that voice. And you would have often heard people say, well, I wouldn't agree with you on everything, but you're a great parliamentarian and we need people like that in Europe. After four years here, and particularly since the war, the onslaught on us has been the likes of which I've never seen in my life. And I was a, a local councillor before that. Now, actually, we are toxic figures, which we never were before. It's not unusual to hear commentary which needs no justification other than that we are an embarrassment and a disgrace. Uh, that's 
bandied around regularly. Um, and that that's enough to just say that, that everyone knows what you mean, because we've suddenly gone to Europe. Not that we've been consistently anti-war activists all our political lives or anything. No, no, no. We've gone to Europe and we've gone mad. And the only uh, rational explanation is that we're in the pay of the Kremlin. So that has actually become quite established, uh, certainly amongst the liberal um middle class set in the Dublin area pushed by the likes of the Irish Times and that's the media has and RTE have played an absolutely disgusting role. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and surprisingly Fianna Fáil given Ireland's history have been used the opportunity to dismantle our neutrality. Now it was weak enough anyway as we pointed out in that Ireland was consistently facilitating US empire to ferry its troops and its military hardware through our civilian airport in Shannon every single day over the last number of decades but they told us it had no they'd no weapons on them or anything like that blah blah blah. But in any case they are now going for a full frontal assault on air neutrality and while they say we won't join NATO it's indistinguishable now from the EU. We want to be involved in more EU defence missions, in battle groups. They're taking, dismantling our peacekeepers and sending them on battle groups. Who would have thought it? They want to remove the triple lock, which is the protection in our constitution when our forces go abroad, more than 12. It has to go before the parliament. It has to have a UN resolution uh, and so on. They want to remove that. So they've stacked up these ridiculous, not a citizens assembly, but these fake consultative processes which are taking place in June. So what we see is a full frontal steamroller to use the war to dismantle our neutrality, unchallenged by and large in the media, by and large. So what's the attitude of the people to that? Well, I don't know. The Sinn Féin are, how will I put this? <laughs> it's, it's a hard one, right? Sinn Féin have been less virulent, obviously, in the war. They've done some ridiculous things like, you know, call for the Russian ambassador to be expelled and all this type of populist nonsense, which means nothing, but is not good from a diplomatic point of view. They have walked down the middle of the road on this. They're trying to cover all their base, all their bases. They are staying firm-ish on neutrality. Uh, they say they support neutrality. They've been saying though that they, if they come to power, which they will, uh, our participation in some of these um, Partnership for Peace military initiatives that previously they said we would leave immediately. Now they're saying, well, there might be contractual obligations. We might have to stay for a bit, but then we'll untangle. Now, whether that's the start, whether they're just being skillful because they are attacked by the media as well and they don't want to give hostages to fortune, or whether it's the beginning of an inevitable sellout I wouldn't like to say my own feeling is is that they deserve their time in government. I hope they get it. We'll be doing everything we can to make sure they stay as anti-militarist as their stance. But I would be worried because of their big backing uh, financially in the US. And that was always going to be uh, a problem in any case. So um, you're right. Like you'd think the Irish people would understand that. I mean, we were we often say we used to, even before the war started, the likes of the, the Poles and these people would be going, I don't understand how anybody could be neutral here. You don't know what it's like to be occupied by a big neighbour. And we go, sorry, 
excuse me, we do. That's why we actually know. So we had that affinity kind of with some of the Eastern European states. We could play that. And we were, all the Western ones are generally former colonial powers. So we were colonized. So we have that sort of street cred globally. But I can tell you something, it's fast disappearing. And what we've seen is that there were sections of the Irish establishment who, since the very beginning, hated that the Irish electorate always returned people who were Eurocritical. Now, I'm incredibly pro-European. I'm an internationalist, but I'm very sceptical about the European Union. It's a different thing. It's not a narrow vision. It's an actual, it's an open vision. But they hated that this, you know, they found it embarrassing always that Ireland returned people who were critical. Like when the Irish people voted against Nice and Lisbon treaties, the establishment in Ireland were mortified. Even though people all over Europe went, yahoo, you're the only ones, you're the ones speaking for the ordinary people. Uh, but the Irish authorities hated that. So now they have their chance. So I'm giving, I'm, I'm depressing myself here talking now. <laughs> this is a bad start. <laughs> but that's kind of, I do think the people can see through it, but there's no vehicle for them to be able to express that. The trade unions have been quiet. The anti-war movement has been a bit mooted. Now we're going into a period where um, there will be, there's more activity around neutrality. But it's not fully reflected in the media, but they'll have a hard battle to force Irish people to give up their neutrality. I, I do think that. But sadly, the, the war propaganda has been prevalent and just otherwise rational people have gone crazy. I've mm. gone crazy. I, I don't get it, you know. Mm. It's quite troubling to see the this belt we had of neutrality, at least this neutral buffer states collapse one after another. But I always also thought Ireland would be one of the main pillars to hold. I, I lived in Ireland myself for a few years, and uh, I remember also uh, the discussions around Americans using the Shannon Air Base for mm. uh, its war in Iraq, and uh, you know the the resentment had caused and. Yeah, to see it uh, yeah, f f fall apart in Ireland and you know, hopes for the rest of us, I think, if uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they can't keep on their neutrality. It's um, not gone yet, so hopefully. No, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you a bit, uh, a bit step back from the whole uh, war, but uh, in, in terms of the wider context of uh, European security, uh, do, do you, uh, have, are there still any discussions left about this? Because I remember... Um, it used to be uh, Merkel and Macron who used to point out, you know, what was usually conventional wisdom, which is, you know, you if you deny security to your adversaries, they will react in a way which undermines your security, which seems to encapsulate this war. Uh, uh, but now the, the the main rhetoric I've I've seen from the EU Parliament has been that you know peace depends on Russia being perpetually weakened, or Russia must even be humiliated. You know, I guess all this venting the anger feels good, but uh, it doesn't. Uh, it it seems uh, <laughs> to go against the whole logic of what Macron and Angela Merkel were arguing for, because they were, at least to some extent, pointing out that we can't have peace in Europe if we deny security to Russia as well. I was just wondering: is is this whole discussion in the in Europe gone with the the departure of Angela Merkel, or is still one still are someone carrying this uh, this uh, idea? I think it's a huge blow. I mean, I mean, ultra right wing um, person, completely different views to me. But I think, yes, if she had been there, I don't think we would be in this situation. I don't think the, con the conversation is certainly not going on with Schulz or any of his uh, German counterparts. Macron is the only one hanging on to it a little bit. 
I think. Um, it's it's definitely it's it's bleak, like it, it's mental because that is the only way to secure peace in Europe is to include everybody, including Russia, in that. But they're doing everything they can to accelerate the tensions and to uh, cause the divisions and shrink the space for where diplomacy might come into being. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's very uh, troubling. I think you've encapsulated the situation well, but it, it's, it's not good. Nobody is on that page. I mean, the lesson that they've drawn from this conflict is not that, that Europe had been engaged on a path of increased militarism even before the war started, which it had, their lesson is that we are not militarily strong enough and we haven't done enough. So to protect ourselves, we need more militarism. We need more. And that's obviously because the mil military industrial complex is chewing in their ears behind them, telling them this nonsense. But diplomacy is off the table because there's obviously not as much money to be made from it. And I think it goes back to the point you were making earlier, Glenn, about this revolving door between politicians and think tanks and advisors. And they come in and they go and it becomes a whole self-fulfilling prophecy. But I don't think there's anybody really banging that drum anymore, no. Um, could, I, could, I, could I just ask about, you know, the, the kind of people who staff the commissions today? Because, of course, we now have a high representative for, of, you know, I, I think it's, it's foreign affairs and security, which is obviously Josep Borrell at the moment. But this is, this is still a relatively new innovation. I mean, what is the expert foundation upon which they work? Do they have uh, um, their own team of experts who support them and who provide information? Do we have committees that provide this information? Or is it all passed out to these think tanks? I mean, is it entirely sort of contracted out in the kind of way that you were saying? Or do, do they have their own sort of cadre of people who might be prepared to explain to them things that um not uh what here the think tanks the reason i ask this question is again i i've been following news internationally and i come back to my earlier point europe losing to a degree that i is why should people and get American talking points thrown at them. If they want to hear American talking points, they can speak to Washington instead. <laughs> that, that is, they don't want a Europe um, globally. People don't want a Europe that is merely an, an echo chamber of what the Americans are saying. And one of the strong things about Europe, one of the expectations many people around the world had about Europe, was that as European states came together, they would actually form, in, to some extent, a counter, an alternative, if you like, balancing point to the Americans, and that this would be a healthy thing. It would open up the international system. It would create a greater degree of stability in the international system. And I think a lot of countries around the world are deeply frustrated about this. And I wonder whether people like Morel are ever advised about this or told about this by their own officials, or do they not have officials? I mean, this is what I don't completely understand. 
I think there's a couple of things on it, right? And then sometimes people talk about the European Union. It's an absolutely massive, not even institution, but sets of institutions, mm. which I think are sort of burgeoning into massive bureaucracies with their own interests as well. So actually the parliament is, when I talked about think tanks and those advisors coming in, that's at parliament level. And the parliament, albeit the only directly elected one, is actually the weakest of the three. I mean, some were full of extremists and lunatics and uh, a lot of mad stuff goes on here. So we often say to when we go and travel to other countries that you wouldn't want to be worrying too much now about what the MEPs say because they're a little bit on the crazy side. So they would have staff and advisors and that as well, but generally they come from maybe civil society, which has been largely weaponized now to a whole degree in that as well. So they're feeding off that mm. pond of advice and depending on where your political group is coming from, you'll feed off that NGO, which will have that stamp of sort of that type of civil society interference, really. Um, that's the parliament. The commission does have some very capable people. So they're the mainstay there. Uh, each state nominates someone each term. They bring in their own cabinet. But actually, it's the officials behind the scene who run the story. They have to know that a lot of this stuff is mental. I mean, if they don't, we're in even bigger trouble. But unfortunately, you know, when they're dealing with a weak leadership. And this is an incredibly weak commission. Mm. Actually, Ireland's Phil Hogan, who was ousted because of COVID, would have been the strongest character there. They're incredibly weak, and that's not helping. Uh, and in one way, you'd think that, well, that would lead to the officials being able to direct them and steer them. But I actually think it's the opposite. I think they're so stupid and lame-brained that they're just gone off on a mad one themselves a lot of the time. But I'm sure there are conflicting people there. And then you have the council, which is the biggest power play, and that's made up of the member states themselves. So it's a foreign affairs, it'll be all the foreign affairs ministers meeting. They've been really frustrated by Hungary's Orban. Uh, they all give out about him morning, noon and night. And obviously there are rule of law problems in Hungary, but we said there's rule of law problems in Spain and France and all the rest of it. But, you know, Poland and Hungary were the bad boys in the class. But since the war, Poland are the good boys, except now, because now they're bringing in a Russian interference law as well. And they're using that to tackle their enemies and the guys who are part of the EPP groups. The whole, the wheels are coming off the whole institution. So mm -hmm. there are capable people who are advising. But I think the biggest problem is that the institutions have been captured mm -hmm. by the lobbyists now and big business and big finance. We saw there are questions around big pharma in terms of how they handled the Pfizer contracts and so on, which involved even Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, we've big agri dictating the policy now in terms of the environment and obviously the military industrial complex with more money than everybody. They are filtering in everywhere. I mean, the Cattergate scandal in the parliament where the members of the European parliament were fined with bags of cash to a couple of million. That involves staff as well and some people in an NGO and some people in the commission. So you see that little cycle of web. And if you can get the ear of the right person, then you might get a policy in. Um, but are there diplomats behind the scenes who must know this is madness? There must be, but they're being very quiet. I haven't heard their voice as much. Now, you do see some balance somewhere, like, say, some of the crazy anti-China stuff, which we don't have enough time to talk about, but that's mm -hmm. even more mad. And they're 
completely on that page now. And the parliament would have us, you know, strip ourselves of all links with China, which we might as well just get rid of the continent then on, on that basis. But uh, sometimes the high representative talks a bit more sense than them on that madness. So, but you're totally right in terms of how you've characterized Europe in the world and how the rest of the world view Europe. I mean, in this position, we've had the good fortune to be able to travel to many countries. And so many people have sad, said to us, it's so sad, what has happened to Europe? And these would be even countries that were maybe formerly colonized by Europe. And they'd say, look, we know we are bad the way we would say, but at least the kind of European colonizers, they left something, you know, there was some stuff there and educate and that kind of stuff. But, oh my God, like, what have you done to yourselves? And I go, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we ask ourselves that question every day. But the rest of the world is looking on. And you see, the other side of the war, which again is that we've opened up a whole new balance of power and world relations. It's only really Europe that's hanging to the US's cold tails in its mm -hmm. death agony, because it is the decline of US empire that we're witnessing here. And while the rest of the world have enough cop on to know and try and develop other alliances, Europe is saying, no, no, these are our like-minded partners now. We don't mind that they charge us four times the amount for LNG than they pay their own citizens. We don't mind now if they protect their own industry at our expense. We don't mind if they spy on our leaders' data because they are our like-minded partners. But it's those Russians and Chinese, they're the bad guys. Mm. That's actually enough for a lot. But yeah, the rest of the world can't believe it. I, I often say to people who get in touch from Africa, the young people of Africa are my hope for humanity now because you have such a young and educated population who are not going to stand by modern colonialism and take it anymore. Mm. They've seen through it. And, uh, you know, you'd made an earlier point, Alexander, about how Europe is more aggressive and they are in the likes of Africa, but they're actually losing everywhere because the Chinese are coming in bringing gifts and infrastructure and presence and I'm sure of course they're there for their own interests as well but they're doing it way better and Europe is losing and it's yeah. devastating and it's destabilizing as well but that's the way it is at the moment until we find a way out. <laughs> Claire Daly you, you have been you've been marvelous can I just say I, I'm going to stop now because as I said I know that we're up against uh, uh, a, a hard stop, but I'm going to leave it, leave, leave it to Glenn to see whether he's got any more questions just before we close. Uh, no, I guess, uh, well, I do have one quick question. Uh, I just want to say also before I go that uh, what, what you describe in the EU Parliament is, uh, it sounds uh, so awfully familiar what we're experiencing in academia, though, because I'm part of also like a Russian research network group and uh, everyone is effectively seeing consensus that you cannot... Uh, discuss the war in Ukraine without talk, discussing NATO expansion. However, you're not allowed to mention NATO expansion in the media because then they will crucify you as, uh, you know, legitimizing what Russia is doing. So you can't explain anything because there's no distinction between explaining and legitimizing, apparently. So this uh, yeah, sounds awfully familiar what, what you're describing. Uh, I guess, yeah, well, we have a few minutes left. I just wanted to ask you very quickly, uh, since you brought it up earlier, the, the Nord Stream, I mean, we there tends to be this, um, you know, accusations always... Uh, we would jump on board. So, you know, Russia was a Russian agent, you know, uh, the Russians were behind uh, uh, the Biden laptop, uh, you know, putting uh, bounties on America's head. Then we had, you know, the Russians attacking the Kremlin. Last night, the, the Russians, you know, the Kakovka dam was blown up. And every time we, we jump on immediately that the Russians are behind this. But uh, 
uh, well, in each of these uh, cases has been proven, well, almost all of them have been proven that uh, this was not the, not the case. But with Nord Stream, it's quite extreme because this was our, it is uh, a key energy uh, lifeline to, to Europe, uh, you know, keeping our industries alive. I was just wondering, is, is there any debate going on in the EU? Any, anyone asking for investigations? Because this seems like a very specific issue, something you know, they definitely would be in the EU interest to find out to who attacked us, who who blew up our energy infrastructure, and uh, at least at least you know not sanctioning anyone, just find out well what happened. Is there anyone pushing for this, or anyone obstructing it, or what is happening in the EU? We've repeatedly tried to raise it at Parliament level, and actually a few people have from Germany as well, but generally from the far right uh, in Germany have raised it. We've raised it ourselves, one or two others. But the biggest issue there is the general silence that prevails around it. I mean, we don't know who is responsible for it. We know certainly that it wasn't Russia, because if Russia wanted to stop the supply, they could have just turned it off. They're not going to engage in a big, massive uh, explosion that's going to cost a huge amount of money to uh, fix. So it was the huge act of economic sabotage on European infrastructure. It led to the biggest release of methane ever in our history, so environmentally tragic. And now we're paying four times as much for American LNG as was being paid for by German gas, apart from uh, Russian gas, apart from the environmental footprint. So it was a huge blow. But the short answer is nobody is asking the questions, which sort of gives you a clue that they probably know what the answer is and they don't want it to come out. Um, and yeah, I mean, we all know Seymour Hersh's story about him having contact with the whistleblowers who say that it was Norway linked in with the US. The truth is we don't know, but it's definitely could not have been the Russians. It would not make any sense at all. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I just, it's, it is demoralizing to see Europe on its knees in this way that would allow that to go unchallenged. But I suppose on the other hand, if they were to have an investigation and if they were to find out who was responsible, who probably was responsible, well then the ramifications for that would be huge. I mean, it has kind of, Russia haven't shown a huge amount of interest in wanting to find out who was behind it either, which kind of leads you to thinking that they know who was behind it as well. But do we want a declaration that the US was behind it and then have a full scale world war with Europe being involved in it? Probably not. But is anybody going to be held to account? No. And the public has a right to know. And it's 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 scandalous uh, on that. And I mean, it does feed into the demoralization that people feel like, Glenn, when you were saying that our situation here is similar to what you feel in academia. We get it so much from people every single day. We've been privileged and fortunate enough to be given a platform that bizarrely loads of people follow. I don't, that must be social media for you. I don't understand, but you would be heartened by the amount of feedback that we get. There is nowhere we can't go that people don't say it to us. So like two European Parliament in an institution that doesn't really represent anything from a tiny little country. We've gone to the US to Georgia to Pakistan to Iraq and in every one of those countries people have spotted us and said they follow our work and agree with what we're saying that has to give us all hope for the future that it is the ordinary people who are grappling for a way to find out and maybe through alternative discussions like this and through social media people can begin to find a way of negotiating out of this madness but it's not going to be easy and I don't think it's going to be quick but we have no choice but to try.
Okay. Uh, Claire Daly, uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, very interesting. So thank you. Thanks very much, guys. Lovely talking to you.